Welcome. It's 200. We've made it. I can't believe we've uh, recorded 199 episodes of Fast Talk. This is number 200. This is a special episode. If you're listening to us right now, know that you can also watch us. You can see Trevor's pretty face. You can see my marginally pretty face. Just catch the video. This is a special episode. We're going to start off with some fascinating statistics about the show. Trevor, you have a list. Let's get into some of those statistics now, shall we? Let's do it. So, Chris, where do we want to start? I think the collective IQ of the guests we've had on the show. I think you've calculated this number. One billion. A billion. A billion. That's correct. And multiplied by our IQs? <laughs> One billion. <laughs> yes. The number of hours it would take somebody to listen to all 199 episodes if they needed to catch up right now. Oh, you calculated this, but 235 consecutive hours, but did you factor in recovery time? I did not. I did not. So take a little longer. Yeah, Don't forget couple recovery. Months, couple months. How many places have we recorded this show? How many different quote unquote studios? Because we know, I think we've mentioned... Not all of them are uh, studios like this fancy place. We have had broom closets. We have had my second bedroom. <laughs> I have hidden tried, in a closet. Tried, I've actually recorded inside a car. Wow, really? Yes. Okay. I Let's have recorded see. many times, in fact, in my childhood room in my parents' house, which is weird. I remember that. Yeah. My absolute best was I went into the spare bedroom in my parents' place. Mm-hmm. And it was so noisy outside, I put the mic on the bed and then had to kneel at the side of the bed <laughs> as if I was praying and put a blanket over top of me to muffle the sound. Mm, very good. I did an hour episode like that. The things we've done, the things we've done to produce this show, it's it's pretty amazing. But I think the, the point is that this show is, it's never stopped. It's been years and it's always come out and we've always, within reason, hit that target launching on time and and serving the audience that that really drives this show. So Chris, a statistic that I got to ask you. Sure. How many bad Canadian jokes have you cracked? <laughs> Infinity is a number, right? Believe so. <laughs> Just call it that at this point. How many times have you used the term PGC1 alpha? Enough to get you really drunk if we made a drinking game out of it. Where is our beer or whiskey or what what's your preferred drink? Cognac, uh, right? No, I'm I'm a Bailey's guy. A Bailey's guy. Weird. You yeah. are Irish. There you go. Yeah. How many PubMed articles have you downloaded and read in the production of this show? I don't have a bloody clue. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it's in the thousands. Are there a thousand? Yeah, probably are. There are. Th yes, there are thousands. <laughs> I bet it was in the thousands. That's horrifying, but quite possible. Yeah. Yeah. How many interns did you hire? to check all of these statistics before we aired them. Exactly zero. Mm. <laughs> but in all seriousness, we hope you enjoy this 200th episode. We have many great guests. Trevor's going to tell you about them. We have a Q&A segment as well. Trevor, who will we listen to or who will be on the show today with us? Yeah, we got some guests that we're really excited about for this one. We have Dr. Andy Pruitt coming in, Kristen Legan, Rob Pickles, and of course, how could we have the 200th episode without Dr. Seiler? Very good. Do you want to say it together? The tagline? One, two, three. Let's, Let's make, make it you fast. fast. I get to do it now? <laughs> yes, you do. I'm excited. Listeners, we at Fast Talk can do more for you. Join Fast Talk Laboratories, our new sports science training center, and you can dive deeper into the training science you love hearing on Fast Talk. At Fast Talk Labs, we offer pathways, which are like a masterclass exploring key training concepts. We have hundreds of interviews, lectures, webinars, and articles from experts like Dr. Steven Seiler, Tim Cusick, Dr. Inigo San Milan, Coach Neil Henderson, Dr. Andy Pruitt, Sebastian Weber, and many more. And our members enjoy special member pricing on our solutions and services, like inside testing, coaching help sessions, sports nutrition guidance, and more. Learn more and join today at FastTalkLabs.com. After 40 years of being a part of and influencing the direction that endurance sports has taken, 
We couldn't think of a better person to be a part of this 200th episode where we talk about the future of endurance sports. Welcome, Dr. Andy Pruitt, to Fast Talk. Thanks, Chris and Trevor. It's a real honor to be here. Thank you. Trevor, take it away. Well, so we really want to talk to you about where you think the science of sports medicine is going. And let's start by saying there's already been huge changes, huge advances in the last 20, 30, 40 years that I'm sure you've seen. Well, just before we went on the air, we were talking about, you know, over my 40 years, things that now are commonplace that weren't there then. That's like arthroscopy, heart rate monitors, you know, this so MRI. Those are all things that didn't exist when sports medicine was actually born. So who knows what the future holds? I mean, if as much change <laughs> well, occurs- you have to know. You have to tell I us. Know? Well, I'm trying to retire, but they won't let me. Um, <laughs> so if as much changes in the next 40 years that has occurred in the last 40 years- it's going to be unbelievable the technology that exists that will exist in those days to help athletes become the best they can be, stay healthy, avoid injury, or recover from injury faster. It's just going to be astronomical. I think our ability to see inside the human body without intrusion, without incision, is only going to improve. Right? We think about the MRI right now. And, and it's, if you walk into the, the sports medicine doctor's office, probably the second thing out of his mouth is going to be, we need to get an MR. <laughs> sure. So there's an upside to that and, and that it's some fabulous technology. For me as an old school caregiver, I think we've, we're losing some of our hands-on diagnostic skills because of the advancement of technology. If I interview a young sports medicine doc, he really leans heavily on the technology where guys in my generation leaned heavily on their hands and intuition and those kinds of things. So what, what's the future hold? I think the future holds more and more ability to look inside the human without an intrusion, without an incision. So that's, where, that's really where it has to go. So that's both diagnostic and prognostication, right? So what's, what's an athlete's ability? Are we going to have a way to scan the heart to tell its ability to grow and to be more functional? Are we going to be able to measure cardiovascular output, predict output in the future? There's a lot of things going that direction. So if you ask me, I think it's going to become less personal and more technological. Now let's go there for a minute because I remember you once told me that a good doctor <laughs> is going to be able to do that diagnostics basically with their hands, with the old school methods. And you said the MRI is almost more for the patient so that the patient can see what's going on. Do you think that's going to change? Do you think the technology is going to get to where whatever device they're using to scan and look inside your knee or look inside your heart is going to beat the doctor? Probably. <laughs> um, that was a hard one to answer. It, 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 it? it breaks my heart actually because if I think about so I'm 71. So if you think about doctors from 50 to my age, they all have really good, they should have good diagnostic skills. And they know if they're examining a knee, they know whether this has a torn ACL, they know whether it has a torn meniscus, and the MRI is confirmatory. Mm -hmm. And it's really for the patient, the patient's family. That younger doc, he's unsure, right? He's unsure. So he's going he's gonna to lean on the MRI heavily great example is, so a family practice doctor doesn't have as many examinations of a knee under his belt that, say, an orthopedist or sports medicine guy does. So he orders the MRI for the young high school athlete because he doesn't have a clue, right? And the MRI comes back that he has a torn meniscus and a partially torn ACL. Well, if we were to MRI most of the kids on the football team, the great number of them are going to have those very identical findings and no symptoms and no traumatic history, right? So you have to be able to correlate clinically what the MRI says. And I think that the, if we get better at being able to age an injury, in other words, if there's some way that that torn meniscus can be looked at and, and say, that's an old, that's an old tear. It's, that's not the problem. That's not an acute problem. Or, wow, that see the bloody edge of that meniscus? I mean, that is, that is a fresh tear. So if we can learn to age, you know, get more refined about our MRI findings and other technological findings, not just MRI, that's really the key is be able to, I do think in the future, technology is going to 
beat out the the human, mm. which is sad to me because I've always loved the hands-on part. <laughs> yeah. You know, but it's where it's going. Back when I started my career on the sidelines, right? So Division One football, I was the guy that ran out on the field when the guy got hurt, and I always I followed the ball up inside, up and down the the sideline, and I always prided myself at really knowing what was wrong with that athlete before he hit the ground. I saw how he got hit. I saw how he twisted his knee. There's so much of that could tell me what was going to be wrong before I got there, and I think that's that's lost in the technological world. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So let's talk about the athletes. Do you think with all these advances, their attitude towards sports medicine is changing and going to continue to change? Or where do you feel they're at? Interesting question, because in my day, we were coached by old school methods and old school successes. And along comes heart rate monitor, and then along comes a max VO2 test. And pretty soon they're starting to predict things. So this, this is, you know, for you to be a uh, world-class cyclist, you need to have a max VO2 of a minimum of 70, right? And then we'd find guys that had huge success that were in the 50s. Yep. And then along comes, you know, Lance in his category, and they're in the 80s, right? And so predictability and reliance on technology has gone from almost disbelief in the old days to now, if you don't hire a high-end coach and he's not testing you every three or four weeks uh, metabolically and once a month, uh, maybe a blood, you feel like you're, you're going to get left behind if you're not participating and all the technology is availed to the athlete these days. So, yeah, I do think to succeed at a high level, they feel like they have to have help. That's fair. And then the final question is uh, really about bike fit. <laughs> Where do you think that's going? Well, obviously, 40 years of my career have been around how a rider sits on a bicycle. And I learned the old school European method early on in the 70s. And quickly, as a scientist and as an anatomist, I thought, this doesn't make any sense. These numbers doesn't make any sense. So we started to calculate joint angles and those kinds of things. And then along came the opportunity was given to me to be really an early pioneer in the use of 3D motion capture. I was the first one to ever have 3D motion capture as part of a medical bike fit product. But there was still a really an important human piece to that 3D motion capture. And I now, through companies like Retool, their collection of data is so deep that there's, I think they're going to be able to do an automated bike fit from all the directions, front view, side view, top view, all the, and have some great predictive values in that, and from that data, they would say, this athlete needs more arch support. This athlete needs two millimeters of four-foot varus on the left, one millimeter on the right. You need to check the saddle because of hip rock. I just think that they have so much deep data now that the future could be you're in your home and you are filmed, you send it into the, the company, and they send you back, you know, a window of saddle height, saddle four aft, bar reach, all those kinds of things. So I do think that automated non-human bike fit is going to happen to us somewhere in the future. Mm. Along those lines, you've played a role in the development of a lot of products, mm. shoes, bars, all sorts of saddles, yep. all sorts of yep. things that help yep. athletes on bikes, cyclists, become healthier, yep. perform better, et cetera. What's the future look like there? What products are coming or what's the next saddle? <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. What's the next big thing there? Funny you ask about saddles, Chris. Oh, yeah? Yeah. <laughs> um, so think about where we sit on a bicycle seat is a very private area. Mm-hmm. And, and in retail, I still think we're going to struggle with the, the retail employee talking to a customer about where exactly is that saddle sore? I mean, sure. And I think female anatomy uh, has finally been brought into the forefront and it's being considered as part of, of saddle design. So I do believe, and, and I, I can say this because I, I, I worked on it. Um, <laughs> you sort of know. I, but, I, but I don't. I do, oh, but I don't because okay. I, I, I retired from Specialized three years now. So I know when I left, what I was hoping to do was I was working on a pressure map or mat, if you will, that was dome-shaped that could be used at a retail setting 
And now we sit on a flat surface in retail and you get an ischial tuberosity, high pressure indication that gives us a conversation about which width saddle to go on that doesn't tell us anything about shape for you though, Mm -hmm. right? So if we have this dome-shaped pressure map that can be used in retail that the customer sits on with... um, thin layer of clothing, right? But not a chamois, just a thin layer of clothing. And that that impression is is hooked to the computer and the computer is hooked to a 3D printer and it's going to 3D print a custom saddle and shape. While the pro- customer waits. Well, uh, you know, that, that may be more than I was hoping. Uh, I, was, I was thinking 48 hours, but there's sure. some finishing to be done. Yeah. It's not just the top of the saddle right. needs to be 3D printed. There's some finishing aspects that would need to be done. So I would say 48 hours later, you know, you, you pick up your custom-made and shaped yeah. saddle at retail. I would think that custom 3D printing could be the future of a lot of bike cycling products in the future. Yeah, I mean... I think about grips on a road bike. Mm-hmm. I think that handlebars, there's so many asymmetries in the human body that the current bicycle is so symmetrical that there's a lot of things that could be 3D printed custom. It's not the, it's not the act of 3D printing. It's the customization sure. that's crucial. Yep. So I do think there's lots of parts in the three contact areas that, that could be custom made and 3D printed. Absolutely. Excellent. Well, we could talk endlessly about the future, Andy. Thanks so much for, for joining us today. You're very welcome, and I'm honored to be here. 200 episodes is quite an accomplishment. Thank you for joining us for it. Wouldn't be the same without you. (laughs) I appreciate it. If Fast Talk is about anything, it's really about the listeners. We, We aim to please. We aim to serve them. Over the years, their questions have driven a lot of this show, whether it's the Q&A episodes, obviously, topic ideas that we want to cover, summary episodes, the number of questions we might receive on a given topic often elicits that response. Man, we we really need to have a summary episode on this topic because either there's maybe some confusion or maybe we just need to really dive into it a bit more. So today we wanted to have at least a small segment of the 200th episode be about those questions. We reached out to our audience We had them send in their questions. We got so many. We're going to choose a few today, a few good ones today, and we're going to save a bunch for a subsequent future episode. So let's dive in. All right, let's take our first question. It's from Ernest Boscovich. A special Q&A episode wouldn't be complete without an Ernest Boscovich question. He's been a longtime listener, a longtime fan, and sends us a ton of great questions. Here's another from Ernest. Hi, Fast Dog. This is uh, Ernest Boskovic from the Netherlands. I have the question about how to apply polarized training model. Would the sweet spot training be detrimental for the mitochondria? Oh, I just got to start by saying I love that we now have a voice for Ernest. I've received so many questions from him. <laughs> yeah. But I never knew what he sounded like. So thank you, Ernest, for sending us that audio question. So let's dive into that question, which is a question we haven't gotten about the polarized versus sweet spot approach before. And it's a great question. And I'm just going to start with the very simple answer of no, doing sweet spot work is not going to harm mitochondria development. As a matter of fact, it's still going to be beneficial. Mm -hmm. You are still sub-threshold when you are doing sweet spot the energy systems that you are still mostly hitting are your aerobic energy systems. So you are going to get some adaptation. You are going to get some benefits and that you're going to see in the uh, mitochondrial development. Now, if you talk to proponents of the sweet spot approach, and so, for example, go to FastCat Coaching's website. They have a really good article on this. Mm -hmm. Their philosophy is this is about cost-benefit analysis, which I agree with. Yep. And what they say is in that sweet spot range, you see the most adaptation in the most systems doing sweet spot work. Right. So that's where you're going to see the most gains. The other thing they talk about is the importance of that TSS and driving your CTL up. Yeah. And again, sweet spot's great for accumulating that TSS. Absolutely. So their approach or philosophy is it is best cost benefit. But they're certainly going to tell you it's going to benefit the aerobic system. Mm -hmm. It's going to benefit that mitochondria development. Right. I fully agree that you're going to see mitochondria development out of that. I just have a different belief. Again, goes back to the cost-benefit analysis, yeah. and I see it the opposite way, which is 
hitting that aerobic system, sweet spot versus doing just sub aerobic threshold work so that what people think of as zone two work. Mm-hmm. In a five uh, zone model, right? In a five zone model, you're going to see equal adaptation in that aerobic system, but it's just going to be equal. Mm-hmm. But you're going to see greater stress requiring greater recovery. So this is where you start to get into that. You're producing some autonomic stress that's going to uh, have an impact on the nervous system that's going to require you to take greater rest before you can hit it again. So you might have to take an extra day. So to me, it's the exact opposite in terms of the cost-benefit analysis. You're going to see greater cost for basically equal benefits. So Mm -hmm. why would you want to do that? I ran these questions by Ryan. He couldn't join us today. He had a third take on this, which was just to address people who are very time crunched, saying, look, if you can only train six hours or less, the one issue with the polarized approach is you can only produce so much stress Mm -hmm. when you have so few hours. Right. And at a certain point, you might not be getting enough of a training adaptation. So his feeling was you might need some of that sweet spot work to produce a greater stress to spark an adaptation. Yeah, yeah. And I I don't think you've ever said this, but I feel like sometimes people get the wrong impression that sweet spot is this evil thing that should be avoided at all costs. And that's not, that's just not the case. You have a different approach. Some people take a different approach where, where it's sweet spot heavy and you have a approach where it's sweet spot light, but you still use it at some point in your training. I think there are times to use sweet spot. I think it can be it can be beneficial. I just think you need to be judicious about it. I think the issue, and look, we've had this conversation with Frank Overton, and he has agreed with this. What we're kind of against is, let's just take a step back and say, sweet spot's a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. That's an right. intensity that's not so hard that it really hurts. Right. But it's hard enough that you feel like you're getting a workout. You right. feel like you're doing something. You can throw down with friends a bit on climbs, that sort of thing. Yep. It is the most fun time on the bike <laughs> or running. Right. And so there is a bit of that push of every time I'm out there training, let's go and do sweet spot work. Mm-hmm. And so you're never really getting that high intensity. You're never getting that low intensity. And that's where I think you get yourself in trouble and you stop adapting. Yeah, Absolutely. Well, great question from Ernest. Thank you, Ernest. A great answer from Trevor. Thank you. Uh, let's take our next question. This one comes from Duncan Lally over in Europe. Morning from the Franco-Swiss border near Geneva, where I'm doing a two-hour easy cycle. Looking forward to Christmas, and thank you so much for the podcast. It's top quality. It's just the best there is on cycling. My question is, if I am 53 years old, male, uh, about six feet high, 83 kilos, I would think about 15, 16% body fat. Is it realistic to drop to 77 kilos and a body fat of roughly 10%? uh, How long and how? (laughs) Do that miracle for me, would you? Big question, Trevor. We've fielded similar questions before. This is uh, this is complicated. Dare I say you don't actually have all the information you'd really want to have to answer this question, but what would you say? Yeah, that's where I started with this question is there's a whole lot more information that I would need. I would need to get some body comp information on him. So this is very different if he is low lean muscle mass and really what he's trying to get rid of is is a lot of body fat versus a more muscled rider who actually doesn't have a lot of body fat to get rid of. That's really going to change how you're going to approach this and bring up the questions of how much do you actually want to lose? Because if you're going to have to lose lean body mass, do you want to lose that? And Mm -hmm. and it's it's a different challenge. So hard to answer this, but overall for somebody his height to get down to 77 kilograms, I would never say, boy, you're getting down to dangerous weights for your, yeah. your height. I, I think it's doable. It's just hard to get into those specifics. I did run this one by Ryan because mm-hmm. he does all our nutrition consults and this is really his area of specialty. He actually wrote a really lengthy answer, which I appreciate and I'll summarize some of it and maybe there's one part I'll, I'll read. But he, he agreed it, it's it's doable based on the height and the weight that he's targeting, but brought up the same question that, that I would ask as well is how much are you willing to commit? <laughs> yeah. We're not going to say this is easy. Yep. 
And Ryan finished his response with saying, you have to treat this like training and how dedicated do you want to be to your training? Mm -hmm. Because it's not, I'll just say this flat out. Everybody's always looking for how can I lose 10, 15 pounds and do it easy? The answer to that is you can't. Mm -hmm. There there might be all these miracle programs that are going to sell you a pill that you'll just strip off weight and not even notice. No, dropping weight is a challenge. It is hard and it takes commitment. There's no way around that, especially if you're going to do it the way that Ryan and I both recommend, which is to lose that weight in a healthy manner. I, I think I asked this question of Ryan once and um, said, is, is really, is, there, is it anything more than discipline? And he said, well, yeah, of course. There's this new thing we've developed. It's called discipline. Yes. <laughs> Take yeah. it away, Trevor. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us more. So... You know, Ryan's recommendation, Ryan is very big on uh, treat this like training. So he, for these athletes, develops nutritional plans that's different from the the actual training plan Mm -hmm. because you need a plan. And the nutrition plan is informed by the training plan. So you'll look at what your targets are, what is your training, and then build the the nutrition around that. So what should you be doing on your training days? What should you be doing on your recovery days? Another important thing that he brought up is that question of losing fat mass versus lean mass and be very careful about not losing that lean mass. So he recommended include strength training Mm -hmm. and also making sure that you're watching your 24-hour protein intake so that you're mostly just losing fat mass. The final point that he brought up here, I actually want to read exactly what he wrote because I don't want to misinterpret this or or say it differently Mm -hmm. from him. So he said, I would also suggest getting a good handle on his current intake and looking at his current energy availability. So in brackets, EA equals TDEI minus EEE divided by FFM, (laughs) EIEIO. EIEIO, yeah. So fortunately- What does that all mean? Yes, so he goes, or- Total daily energy intake minus exercise energy expenditure divided by fat-free mass. Hmm. So he says, since fat-free mass is the metabolically active component, we don't want to risk losing too much power-producing tissue at the expense of losing fat mass. Mm -hmm. Generally, males can exist between 30 to 40 kilograms per calorie fat-free mass per day and lose weight while maintaining performance. Greater than 40 to 45 is adequate. Going below 30 for short periods of time may or may not cause performance issues, but I generally do not recommend cutting too much kilocalories for athletes that are very active. For less active athletes, that may be a strategy we could use. So my take-home, establish your baseline habits, put some numbers to them, Write up an annual plan because 13 pounds from somebody already at a healthy weight will take some time. Mm -hmm. Set small goals and no more than three to four weeks at a time. Create your nutritional approach, e.g. how much, what types of fluids, et cetera, and execute that. Very complicated. We could, and we have, devoted entire episodes to weight, weight loss, weight management, all of these things. We have content on our site where Ryan has walked through this process, food journaling, logging. It's very complicated. We couldn't possibly develop a plan for an individual in in five minutes, but I think that was a great, great summary of the complexities of it, honestly. And thanks, Ryan. I think that was a great response that he sent us. Yeah. Great question from Duncan there. Let's take our final question. This one is from Matt Winstead. Hey, this is Matt Winstead. During the base season, doing big gear work, low RPMs and sub-threshold workouts and sweet spot or tempo, I tend to carry soreness in my legs for at least half of a week. And for example, at the end of a training week, by Monday, my legs have a lot of soreness. And by Wednesday, all of that soreness has not gone after a day of rest and a day of zone one. And typically I would start another hard workout by Wednesday. Is that okay to be attempting interval work during the base phase, like a big gear workout or a sweet spot workout or some type of um, force intervals with still residual soreness in your legs? Another complex question, I would think. Interesting that 
he's feeling sore for such a long period of time in my mind. That stood out. Interesting that I guess it's repeating itself too. You would think that with uh, in a Dom's situation, it, it tends to go away after you know that initial bout and you've worked through that initial soreness. So what would you have to say here to Matt? Yeah, so that was the first question that both Ryan and I raised on this, which is why is he sore for so long? Cycling has no eccentric motion. So yes, your training can make you a little sore, but to be sore for that long doesn't seem quite right. Yeah, Ryan, the, the first question he raised, does he have the right balance? Is he just doing too much training and not prioritizing his recovery so his body doesn't have the ability to rebound? Mm-hmm. And you're just, he's seeing it mostly when he's doing the big gear intervals, his body's basically saying, I'm just out of balance here, so I just can't recover from this. Uh, Where I immediately went was actually, is there any sort of neuromuscular issues here? Just poor Mm. neuromuscular recruitment. So when he's doing that big gears, he's getting a lot of coactivation, which is causing muscle tearing, and that's producing some of the, the soreness. So if what I'm saying has any validity to it, then yes, doing some neuromuscular work is really important for him. He should be doing some big gears, should probably also be doing some high cadence work and, and working on that, uh, the neuromuscular side. Ryan's recommendations are he needs to look at his recovery, might need to build in more recovery. And Ryan felt he should be making sure that he's doing these intervals, these, these big gear intervals rested, mm-hmm. fully recovered. Right. In terms of the continuing when he's sore, he, uh, he talked about this being in the base phase. Being a little sore in the base phase is fine in my books. You don't want to go into a race sore. That's going to affect your mm-hmm. performance. Mm-hmm. But the base phase to say, I'm sore, I'm going to go out on the bike, there's not a big issue with that. It seems like it would be a little overkill if you were sore every time you rode, though. <laughs> yeah, every time you ride, not great. Yeah. Being sore for four days is not great. So yeah. that does need to be addressed. Yep. So I think the biggest message here is he needs to look into why that is. But otherwise, having some soreness, it's fine. I would say you also just want to plan around that. So maybe if the big gears make you pretty sore, wait a few days before you do your next interval session and make sure that most of that soreness is cleared before you do them. Mm -hmm. And as Ryan said, make sure you're fully fresh going into the big gear work. Yeah, great. Thanks, everybody, for submitting those great questions. Again, we got so many that we're going to save up all the rest and have those in a future episode of Fast Talk, so stay tuned. Well, our next guest is someone who I think represents the future of cycling. That is the theme of this episode as a whole, the 200th episode. What is the future? Kristen is someone who started life, let's say, as a triathlete. She then evolved into a cyclocross racer primarily, but now she does ultra distance events. She does mountain bike marathon events. She does a little bit of everything, not just as an athlete, but as a coach. She works with a lot of athletes that run the gamut. And I think that's why she's a great guest to help us discuss the future of the sport of cycling. Welcome to Fast Talk, Kristen Legan. Thanks for having me. So let's just hit you with that big question and see where this conversation goes. What do you think is the future of the sport of cycling? And maybe we should break it down a little bit. There, there's a lot of different aspects and niches within the, the sport of cycling. So world tour, I think I know where you're going to head with this, but let's start there. Yeah, yeah, I think it's a it's a pretty huge topic. So starting with world tour, there's so much history with the world tour side of things that I think we're going to probably not see giant changes with that right away or, you know, long term because there's so much history there. So it's not like we're going to see just wild changes to grand tours or classics. But I do think that there's opportunity for different types of stages. You know, we've seen some gravel stages in there. And so I think we could see some some smaller little additions based on what's happening in the rest of the world with with cycling. So yeah, so maybe, you know, we're always going to see big equipment changes and physiological changes with all of the testing and all the new research that we're, we're seeing out there. But I think in terms of the actual racing, it's going to maybe stay relatively similar to what we've been seeing lately. Yeah, right. But that brings us to maybe the the more exciting question, which is where are you seeing a lot of change, a lot of evolution in the sport, maybe even revolution in the sport? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think we can all agree the last 
five to 10 years has seen a huge change in this mixed terrain gravel kind of world of cycling, especially here in the US and it's growing globally as well. So I think that's where we're going to see even more changes happening. I don't think we're at that, you know, the max point right now. So we're going to continue to see more changes. And I think a lot of that is going to happen in the races themselves. We're going to see more and more races pop up on the scene. And I think there's some really cool race directors out there doing interesting things, trying different types of races, whether it's mixing up what terrain you're riding or surfaces you're riding, or even just the format. We're seeing more segment style events happening. And so it's kind of... I think we're going to see an even bigger expansion of that, more creativity there, which is great for us as riders because that just means we're going to have a lot more opportunities to test ourselves and race against people in different ways and not just the same old thing over and over again. Any specific examples you'd like to mention? I guess I would plug the fact that you have been selected. It's a, it's a 60 riders were selected. It's a pretty small exclusive group that you got into to do the Lifetime Grand Prix. Could you explain what that is? Yeah, the Lifetime Grand Prix is a really exciting event, at least for me. It's uh, six races. It spans endurance, gravel riding, and mountain biking. It brings those two sides together into a series. And so, yeah, it was a selection of 60 riders, and it's going to be a really fun circuit to follow. So you can kind of get to know some of the riders and watch their progress through the season. And so I think, you know, that is a great example of how gravel, or I guess we can call it just endurance off-road riding. <laughs> I don't know yeah. what you want to yeah, call it anymore. it's still evolving, right? But it's pulling riders from so many different directions. You're having people that have been traditionally road riders coming in and trying their hand at some gravel events. You're having, you know, enduro and downhill mountain bikers showing up at some of these races. And so it is really bringing a lot of these different communities together. And again, just testing ourselves in, in ways that we maybe haven't done in the past. But yeah, I think series are another big example of where gravel's going. We saw Belgian Waffle Ride expand quite a bit this year with more, more and more races. Mm -hmm. So I think it's fun to talk with people who have been in mountain biking for a long time and talk about the Norba series and how some of this is actually really similar to that, which is exciting for someone like me who didn't maybe get to experience the Norba stuff, but has always heard these amazing experiences and how people really enjoyed that. So getting to kind of experience that in our own way. Mm -hmm. Kristen, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thank, thank you. you. Congrats on the 200th episode. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, I'm Ryan Kohler, head coach and physiologist at Fast Talk Laboratories. And I'm Trevor Connor, CEO of Fast Talk Labs. Between the two of us, Ryan and I have over 40 years of coaching and clinical experience. From juniors to masters, national level athletes to club riders. Our team at Fast Talk Laboratories is pleased to offer new solutions and services. Now you can get the same guidance and testing available to athletes at national performance centers. No matter where you live or train, our virtual performance center can be your support network to get faster, to get answers, and to get more enjoyment from your sport. Schedule a free consult. We'll discuss your background and recommend a path forward. Book a coaching help session. We'll help you push your thinking and find new opportunities. We can troubleshoot challenges and find solutions. Even if you're working with a coach, we can help support you and your coach by bringing a neutral, science-based perspective to your training. Schedule inside testing you can do from anywhere in the world. We can reveal incredible insights into your personal physiology and strengths as an athlete, plus next steps to improve your performance. Prove your nutrition with a consultation tailored to your needs or create a personal race day nutrition plan. We can even help you with workouts and skills. We offer in-person and virtual sessions to guide key workouts or improve technique. Fast Talk Laboratories is here for you, wherever you are. See how we can help at fasttalklabs.com solutions. Well, I can't believe it's been over 150 episodes since we had this guest first appear on our, our show. And I refer to him as the Jay-Z of physiology, and I will still stand behind that claim. Dr. Seiler, welcome to the show. You started with us back then. You have been with us ever since. And I have to say, and I hope you don't mind my saying this, you have been a big part of the spirit of the show and have really represented on that physiology research training side what we are trying to do. And, and so we could not do this 200th episode without you. And today we hope that we can talk to you a little bit about where endurance sports training and research is going. 
Well, thanks, Trevor. I tell you what, you guys introduced me to podcasts. I literally, I don't think I actually knew what a podcast was when I first received an email from uh, <laughs> from you and asked me to speak. And then the whole connection to some musician and all this stuff, I was totally confused. But but it has been a really good ride. And, and I have learned a lot from you guys. And I hope uh, we've had a good experience together. And And Man, I just love these conversations. So thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Pleasure to have you. As I said, would not be the 200th episode without having you on here. So thank you for joining us. And let's dive into this question. So I actually want to start with specifically what you're doing because you've been you've actually kept us a little involved in your research. We we've reached out to our listeners to participate in some of your studies, but you are continuing to do what you've always done, which is look at the the science of endurance sports training from unique perspectives to come up with things that maybe the labs haven't discovered yet. So could you tell us a little bit about what you're doing right now? Yeah, well, I can't say I've always done that because I do have my background in the traditional lab and in the more the molecular physiology lab. But you're right, most of my last 20 years has been spent kind of on that frontier between that traditional lab, which is for exercise physiologists, it's some kind of a work meter, an ergometer, like a bicycle, a treadmill or whatever. And then these tools for measuring physiological responses like heart rate and lactate and oxygen consumption and so forth. So that's that that central lab that we all have grown up with in exercise physiology dating back 100 years. And then 50, say 50, 55 years ago, we we kind of move into this so-called molecular exercise physiology. And I would say it was with Halazi who discovered that there was mitochondrial proliferation in rats that ran on treadmills. And so suddenly we started getting some information about what was actually happening inside the body. And, and that's gone down this, you know, down into the rabbit hole of cellular signaling and metabolomics and so forth. And so that's a, a, a really powerful laboratory. And then this third lab where maybe I've been at least partly involved in, in developing is, is somewhat technology driven, but also driven by uh, respect for the reality that the coach athlete relationship and all that happens there with hundreds and thousands of athletes over time represents a kind of laboratory of trial and error around training. So you got these three laboratories that have evolved. And I would say that the two on the ends, the one in the middle is pretty much what it is and continues to be what it is. But the two on the ends, the the very molecular and the very field-based, they are both being amplified and, and empowered by technology, by technological developments. And uh, we will see that they, you know, we're going to have to connect all three of these. And I, I think that's happening. We're starting to be able to go from, you know, have discussions about training intensity distribution and actually connecting cellular signaling data to that and to the why, you know, why is, why are the athletes doing this? Why is that maybe better to train more low intensity? And what does the signaling data say? So th this is where we're going. And uh, I think it's really exciting. The technology is allowing us to move some of the very traditional measurements that only happen in the laboratory out into the field. Uh, and that's that's some of the work that I'm doing. And when you combine that with social media, with crowdsourced tools, then we can really ramp up the number of people that we can ask to help us in the data collection process. And that I think that's going to help us to do a better job of understanding, for example, the individual responses, the variation in how people respond to the same training prescription. So getting broader here, it seems like when you talk about that third, that, that in the field testing, there's opportunities now and moving forward that we didn't have 10, 20 years ago. So for example, you asked us to, to help get participants for one of your studies, but you were putting it out on social media, asking people to participate. And now you can reach out to people and say, send me a year's worth of your data. I want your heart rate, your power data, all this information that people didn't used to collect 20 years ago. So 20 years ago to get a study with 15 athletes in it was was a pretty good end value. Now you can get thousands and get data going back for years. So that's something we've we've never been able to do before. Yeah, I mean I can, it's even closer to home, you know, the the one of the studies that is kind of a seminal work for me or that that you know I still 
build a lot of my current research around was published in 2006. It was with junior cross-country skiers where, where I had a student go up and collect data on over 425, 30 training sessions. And that's where I introduced this basic polarized model is, is from that data and some other data. This is only 15 years ago, and 400 workouts was a lot just 15 years ago. And now I'm sure people in the audience are going, 400 workouts, that's nothing. You know, that's one athlete for a year, you know. so, But that's how quickly things have changed is that that, that study has been referenced, I don't know, 700 and something times. And, and now we can do crowdsource work where the, the number of workouts, the number, you know, the input is from thousands of athletes. So it's a, it's a new ballgame. What are the shortcomings of that approach, if any? Uh, the, the shortcomings, of course, are that we lose some of that that control. You know, the idea of the laboratory is to control the variables so that you you are controlling the various potential confounders. You know, the whether it's the calibration of the bicycle, uh, the the exactness of the heart rate monitor, what did they eat before they trained? Did they drink ca- have caffeine? All of those things. In the laboratory, we try to just tighten everything up and do as, as good a job as we can. Well, that's not reality. Uh, reality is that people train every day and they have, you know, they drink a cup of an espresso before they train They or they don't eat this time, they ate last time. So you lose control, but you gain a kind of a external validity mm-hmm. and you overcome the control issues with numbers, Right. you know, just the power of numbers. So there are two different ways of, of achieving a similar goal. But I, I just think that the traditional laboratory is not going to disappear, but we're going to see more and more symbiosis in kind of moving back and forth. Observation, hypothesis generation, testing, new hypotheses, and we're going to get this virtuous cycle, I hope. And, and I think it's already happening. And then, of course, the signaling people are that's a, another breed or another group, and they're in the game. You know, they're involved, and, and they're helping to make sense of all this. So the big question I have for you is where do you think this is all going? What is the future of endurance sports training, or at least what are we going to be able to do, and what do you think we're going to discover that we haven't been able to do yet? Right. Yeah, and that's, of course, the, the, the $64,000 question. I don't think coaching, good coaching, is going to disappear, To just to put that out there up front, is that I, I still believe that at least for my lifetime, uh, you know, assuming I live a few years more, that the coach with the good eyes and the ability to see a gestalt of what's happening with their athletes and to communicate, that that's still important. But we will have more information and our heads up display of information about what's happening to the athlete, how they're responding, the relationship between internal and external workload, things like this will inform the decision-making process and hopefully give a bigger percentage of our athletes a good individualized experience with their training. You know, the guardrails, I think we've done a pretty good job of, of trying to understand some of the basics, the fundamentals of the training process. But within that, those guardrails, now we're trying to help individualize the process. And whether that's through big data, whether it whether artificial intelligence will play a role in other branches, medicine and so forth, uh, what we're seeing is that artificial intelligence, AI is not taking over, but it is augmenting. Mm-hmm. The places where it's helping, like, for example, in analyzing photographic data or, or, uh, you know, mammograms and so forth and cancer testing, cancer screening, it's AI plus uh, specialist. It's not either or. And I think that's the model that we'll see also emerging in the coaching space. It'll be coach plus some AI, some big data. And so it will help the coach to focus on things that are fuzzy and, and the, the AI perhaps will take some of the workload, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's what I see moving forward. AI or, you know, combinations of different kinds of, of data. But it still comes down to creating a good heads-up display that allows athletes and coaches to keep looking forward, keep their eye on the ball, but have information, data that informs their process from day to day. 
So, Dr. Sather, one final question here, and I'm going to put you a little bit on the spot. You have had a huge impact on exercise physiology and on training, but I know you're not the type of person to rest on his laurels. You want to keep having an impact. So if the exercise physiology gods came down and said to you, (laughs) you can have one more, only one impact, but you can pick what it is, what would you answer? Hmm. Oh, wow. That sounds sounds terminal. <laughs> here you are moments ago saying, if I live, assuming I live, and now yeah, Trevor's yeah, putting like, you on the spot here. He just gave me a really bad diagnosis. <laughs> <laughs> but given that, and, and, and those things happen, um, right now, I, I think the nearest, the thing that I would like to contribute would be then understanding breathing, ventilation, and how ventilation mm-hmm. plays in, because it's one of the two vital signs that are that are fundamental. You know, I've said it recently, you go into, a, if you're unconscious and get wheeled into an emergency room, what do they look at? They say, is this person breathing? And is the heart, is their heart beating? And then they go take it from there. And so those two, well, heart rate, you know, we've, we've squeezed that turnip pretty darn well, <laughs> of, you know, I would say. So I don't see a whole lot of revolution, maybe a little bit of evolution on the heart using heart data, but ventilation, man, there's so much information within breathing that tells us things. And I think we're going to be able to move that out into the field and the scope of ventilation is bigger in terms of the the change. And so anyway, I'm I'm really excited about it and, and I'm trying, that would be where I would want to try to make a, a last contribution if Trevor's going to you know, send me off. (laughs) (laughs) He has the power to do that. Well, yeah, that that brings up the other bit of bad news I have for you, but we'll save that for later. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) There's a tornado coming my way. All right. Well, thank you. Thanks for for giving me a big downer, Trevor. I I was so happy. It was... Here it is Friday, and, you know, I was going to have a beer after, but I may have to have, a have three. Instead. Have three. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, let's look at the positive. Uh, it's You get another big impact. <laughs> yeah, but I, <laughs> but I don't live to see it. It's a trade-off. <laughs> There's always a trade-off. <laughs> so it's a, uh, yeah, thanks a lot. I, he's getting me back for telling Canadian jokes. Yeah, so I know. A, I'm waiting for I'm waiting for him to, to do the same to me, so... Well, that's so. Uh, yeah, if I if I was only going to have one last impact on the show, be to get Chris to say I like Canadians. <laughs> <laughs> if I got that, hey, I'd be happy. Hey, I'm it's done. the two hundredth episode. <laughs> Anything could happen, Trevor. You might not even have to ask that nicely or apologize afterwards. Trevor, we only make fun of you because we do like Canadians, and that's that's from the heart, man. Yes. We like I, I like Canadians. Thank you for saying that, Doctor Seiler. <laughs> Even though he's trying to kill me off, I still like Canadians. Yeah. So, so well, you're proving that you're actually a nicer human than the Canadian because he's the one trying to kill you. Yeah. yeah. Well. Uh, <laughs> All right. It's, it's better to be good than to look good. Something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Always a pleasure, Dr. Seiler. Thank you for joining us on this 200th episode. We couldn't have a 200th episode without you. Well, thank you, guys. And 200 more, you know, just keep it rolling. We will. And thank you for all you've done for this show. It would not be the same without you. All right. So for our fourth and final guest on this episode, I would like to welcome also the newest member of Fast Talk Labs, Rob Pickles. Welcome. Rob, welcome. Thanks, guys. Proud to be here. Proud to be with you. Looking forward to it. It's going to be a good time. We love having you on the team. We did two Nerd Lab episodes with you where you went through a bunch of studies with me and geeked out. And Yeah, that was a quick interview, huh? Yeah. Oh, well, I knew right then. Boom. Done. Close the book. <laughs> Got to have you on the show. So welcome. We are going to talk now about the future of some of those things that don't really have a past. So <laughs> new things, things like some of these wearables that have just come out, things like even though it's not quite new anymore, we'll still think of it as new, all this virtual riding and virtual racing. So, Chris, where do we want to start? Gosh, I think the the most interesting thing to me is to talk about where technology is taking some of the gadgets and the data collection devices. Where is that headed? I know you have a little bit of experience here, so that's why I want to hit you with that first. 
Yeah, definitely. And it's hard to say, is this coming from the consumer? Is it coming from the companies? But I think that we're seeing a rise in the connected athlete, the quantified athlete, where whatever you can possibly get data on, people are recording on themselves. And that wearable technology, it's really, really increasing at this point in time. So I think that we're going to continue to see that rise. I, I think that people are looking for ways to get some guidance, right? As we see new people enter into the sport, as sports grow, people don't want to feel lost, right? Especially in this day and age, you have Google Maps with you, hmm. y- you know, any, any information that you need, you have at your fingertips. And athletes are looking for that as well. You know, we saw today when we were testing just the integration of technology with the athletes that we were testing this morning, how many of them had music, had headphones, had Netflix and things like that playing, right? And that attitude also plays into their use of technology. So it's not just heart rate monitors anymore, right? The old standby, the old classic that we all use, it's not just power meters anymore. Again, another classic standby, but all of these other things that we're able to measure, people are really looking for that. So that does raise, though, a challenge or potential danger here where we are, it feels like we're getting into this. If we can measure it, we'll provide a device. And there is this belief that anything we can measure, you should have that. That's the new thing that's going to help your performance. And my guess is it's going to be hard for people to start differentiating what are really valuable metrics versus something that they just got some money out of my wallet for. Yeah, Trevor, I'm sure that, you know, you're a researcher. You you faced this problem before, right? What are the variables that we measure? A lot of people would just choose to measure everything you absolutely could when you're running a study. But we know that that's not the best way to go about that because it really muddies the water. It muddies the data that you're getting. And so to be able to be focused is extremely important. Now, I think you're entirely right. You have one wearable on your arm telling you, you know, this feedback, another one on your finger, another one on your leg, Right? And they're all working in this very myopic situation. And they're all trying to give you feedback on exactly the one thing that they're measuring. How do you integrate all of that? Because they're certainly not integrating across the different devices. Right? And so you as an individual makes it really difficult. I think the coaches are really important in this situation. But at the same time, I also think as you're suggesting to only be collecting data on what's important, what's a limitation to the performance that you're trying to achieve. That could be different for different sports. It could be different for different people. seems like that is an opportunity for something in the future to help people integrate or sift through all of this data. And maybe that's, I don't know what that is, but that could be not a necessity, but something that people are looking for once they're overloaded with all this other data. Yeah, I think that if you you talk about the near term, it's an individual, it's a person, it's a coach, Mm -hmm. to tell you the truth, right? I mean, because this is information. And information can be research studies. Information can be listening to us. Information can also be reading the output of these different devices. You know, if we really want to talk about the future, I know that there's work being done right now in in artificial intelligence. You know, and, and maybe AI is a system that's able to integrate all of this information for the individual athlete. And I think that has a lot more value in it than just a, a, a simple algorithm that is currently in that wearable device that's not able to truly take the person into account or truly take all of this data into account. But for it to be an automatic machine-driven thing, we need this machine learning, we need this artificial intelligence for it to truly be actionable and worthwhile information. Mm -hmm. So here's the question that I have for both of you. And Chris, I know your answer is going to be none of it. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But... Of these new wearables, of this new data that we're, we're collecting, some of these new things that have come out, which are the ones that you feel, yeah, these are here to stay. There's something to that. Ooh, it's a good question. For me, in all honesty, I think more, and I hate to say this, I think more <laughs> about the company hmm. and the number of consumers that they have than I do the information. Because in my mind, Trevor, and, and this is what I hate to say, I am separating what's here to stay with what's effective because those are two very different things. A product that lives in the marketplace doesn't necessarily have to be good. Mm-hmm. People have to think that it's good. It needs to have marketing behind it. It needs to have consumers behind it and everything else. That's a very difficult thing is for people to distill that. And so for me, you know, and, and I'm not, I'm going to say a company here and I'm not commenting on their product. But if you look at what Whoop is doing right now. They're doing it totally different than any other company that's ever made a wearable before. They're acting like a tech company. 
right? If you look at their funding, if you look at their business model, if you look at the steps that they've taken, how they've rolled out their product, that's very different than what Polar, Garmin, Wahoo, all of these other companies in this space are doing. I think that they have a likelihood to reach this new consumer, right? Who's used to these tech sort of launches, this more of a Silicon Valley sort of approach to things. I think they could be successful, but especially because of their company and, and how they're modeling it and how they're working. Now, I use a Whoop. My wife has a Whoop. You know, don't make the, uh, the assessment, the judgment that I'm tying those two sort of things together. You know, but I will say that I use that product in an exploratory sense at this point in time. You know, I'm not willing to put any of my decisions into one device. For us at this point, it's a data point that goes along with all of the other data points that I'm able to integrate I do think it was interesting you went down that direction, though, because I do think we have most of the metrics that I think you need out on the road to be able to do effective training. So I think a lot of the metrics that you're going to start seeing, a lot of the data you're going to start seeing is the rest of the time, which is what something like Whoop really focuses on. So it's the looking at your HRV, looking at your sleep, looking at the the whole day as opposed to just the time that you're training. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if we know what we don't know until we know that we don't know it. <laughs> That's fair. Right? Because why do you use power or heart rate to get a sense of the metabolic system, you know, that's providing the majority of the power for whatever workload you're doing? What if we could measure that more directly? You know, the wearable, you know, there's like a, a wearable lactate sensing patch that assesses lactate in your sweat at this point in time. You know, personally, I haven't dived deep enough to know exactly the accuracy or efficacy of using that. But what if you went more direct to the source instead of using a secondary or tertiary measure down the line? The other side of this too is, you know, and Chris, I think this is very relevant to you. Wearable EKG base layers are going to be a thing right now. Mm -hmm. You know, and a lot of that is coming out of the soft goods technology, right? The world that I just left and flexible, stretchable inks that are being developed that can transmit electrical signals. Now you can integrate these EKG sensors directly into a base layer that's as form-fitting as any other garment that you have. You can wirelessly beam in an accurate EKG signal. Does that open up new grounds for people training, you know, as opposed to putting their fingers on an Apple Watch or wearing a Holter monitor or frankly just hoping, you know, to mm -hmm. tell you the truth? Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that there are horizons that are going to change how we're viewing training moving forward. That's fair. And I certainly remember Dr. Samalam once saying that if they ever came out with a, a real-time lactate measurement when you're training, that would trump everything. Just an indwelling catheter. I mean, why <laughs> not? Fun. Sure, let's go. I, <laughs> I feel like what you're getting at too, in some ways, could be summarized as things that take what the technology that we have right now and make it less intrusive, more comfortable, more convenient in some ways, but hopefully also advance the accuracy and get a more direct measurement of some of these data points. Yeah. Comfort and convenience are always king, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Any product that's made that, that can hit those two things is great. You know, but as you're saying, the accuracy side of things, how do we get more closely to the direct thing that we want to measure so that we're not measuring something downstream, mm -hmm. right? And downstream measurements can be great if you understand the caveats to them. But no, I think that you're 100%. That's a great summary. Rob, thanks for joining us. We want to thank our guests, Dr. Seiler, Dr. Pruitt, Kristen Legan, Rob Pickles. We want to thank you, our listeners and now viewers, for being a part of Fast Talk this show. Um, we couldn't have done it without you. Um, and now we want to get into our not 60 second take home. Well, it is a 60 second take home. If you run over, we're not going to complain this time because it's a special episode. This is the 200th episode. Trevor, the question I want to pose to you, what is the take home message from all 200 episodes, not just this one? Big question. My one-minute summary of what I think this show is all about. Look at the forest for the trees. That is my biggest message. I am personally all about principles, principles of exercise physiology, the principles of training. Those need to inform everything you do, and it's really important to understand those principles. Then you get down to the details. 
the concern I always have in training is when you get caught up in the details and forget about the principles. So that can get you off track. So we've sometimes had people comment, well, you're against FTP, you're against CTL, you're against all these metrics and numbers. No, not at all. I think they're great. But if you focus just on those, that is the details. Mm -hmm. And they can take you off track because you don't know how and why you're using them. Just trying to drive CTL up on its own, right. that can get you off track. Yeah. What it should be is know the principles, know the big picture, know the forest, and then use the details to inform that. How does CTL help those principles? How does FTB help those principles? And then they're really valuable. Mm -hmm. So the details help the principles, but always focus on the principles. Very good. Chris, what's yours? Well, you know, I don't think it's significantly different from yours, although it might on the surface of things seem that way. Everything we do here, it could be complex, can be very scientific. We're talking about complex principles and things, but obviously in my mind, everything is meant to improve your enjoyment of the sport. It's supposed to be fun. If you're performance-driven, that means performance leads to fun, leads to enjoyment. If you're science-driven, that means understanding the science more leads to more enjoyment or fun. So I hope that people listen to us not only to learn, but because they enjoy it, they get something out of it that's fun, that improves their cycling, that improves whatever endurance sport they, they partake in. And yeah, that just leads to more and more enjoyment and that they can pass on to friends and to others. Thank you. Well, that was episode 200. Thanks for joining us. But this isn't it. We're really excited about the episodes we're going to bring you this year. And hopefully in a couple of years, we're going to be back here for episode 400. Wow, that's a big number. That is a really big number. Yeah. Chris, you want to sign us out? I I would. I honestly, I've done the outro a hundred times. No, I've done it 200 times actually <laughs> before. I cannot memorize it. Do you have it on there on your computer there? How could you have done it that many times and still not know? Uh, it, it's, it's one of those things. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcast and be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. You're a terrible thrower. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode and become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com slash join and become a part of our education and coaching community. For Dr. Steven Seiler, Dr. Andy Pruitt, Kristen Legan, Rob Pickles, and Trevor Connor, I'm Chris Case. Thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.